0: Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca, and this is Full Plate, Full Cup. We're startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you
1: deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode
0: shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. Liz, we are so excited to have you today on the Full Plate, Full Cup podcast. And everyone, welcome to another episode. Today's is surely about to be a real treat for us. We're going to talk to Liz Tran. We spent this past weekend reading her book, which will be out by the time this episode airs. So we're going to deep dive on all things, the karma of success, Liz and her journey. So Liz, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm excited to talk to other
0: coaches. I I know. know Do that. It's very fun. It's It's always a real treat. So Liz, I'm going to read a little intro about you and then we're going to dive right in. Liz Tran is an executive coach to the CEOs and founders of tech companies. Altogether, her clients have raised over $400 million in funding and created $4 billion in enterprise value. She's also the author of her first book, The Karma of Success Spiritual Strategies to Free Your Inner Genius, host of the podcast Reset with Liz Tran, and the creator of the Instagram account at ResetNYC. In addition to her experience in venture capital and tech, She is also a trained meditation teacher and Reiki master and studied yoga at the Samyak Ashram. Liz, we are so excited to talk to you about your new book, The Karma of Success. But before we dive in, we always like to start at the beginning with our guests. So we would love to hear a bit about you and your journey. Can you tell us about little Liz, which you touched on in your book? What she wanted to do and how she got into this high-powered world of tech VC and executive coaching.
2: Yeah, definitely. I didn't even know that executive coaching existed until I was like 31 years old, <laughs> and then I became a coach three years later. But it's a it was, I think, a really and still is a niche industry that you know certainly people who are in college are not thinking that that's a viable. They don't even know that it exists, right? Like the options are not there, um, and. You know, my world was even smaller when I was a kid. And um, I had a lot of pressure from my mom, who is an immigrant from Vietnam, uh, to be a lawyer or to be a doctor, which is a very typical immigrant story. You know, they want more for their kids. She was looking for something that would be unequivocally a status symbol about, you know, my education, etc. Um, And I had all sorts of dreams when I was little. Like I loved reading books. I wanted to be a ballerina. So I would chug milk when I was like six, seven and eight, hoping that I would grow to be really tall. Um, I wanted to be the first Asian American Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Um, but I don't actually know if I really wanted those things or if they were really socialized to me. Um, and so it actually took me a very long time um, until my 30s to really in earnest ask the question of who am I? What do I want to do? outside of a vacuum of who i feel i need to be for other people which i think is very much like a hallmark of codependent relationships where you know you derive a lot of your own value from how you sit in relation to other people or how you sit in other people's eyes you know my early 30s let's say from age 30 to 33 um and i had been doing a lot of this spiritual work beforehand but that was a huge breakthrough for me to really ask myself Who am I? (laughs) What do I want? What do I like? What do I care about? Really basic questions that I think we often take for granted.
0: For sure. For sure. And basic questions that you need to have a lot of courage to be willing to ask yourself, right? Because when you get honest in answering those questions, it has the potential to rattle your world.
2: Totally. I mean, I lost a lot of friends, and maybe lost is the wrong word, but um transitioned a lot of friendships because once I started being who I really was I was like oh we don't really have that much in common you know like my entire taste in who I wanted to date changed you know like my whole aesthetic look changed. I mean everything changed about I mean it was so funny you know I don't I don't know if a lot of people do change in that way but I just hadn't really allowed myself to do that organically throughout my life so I was sort of playing catch up
0: yeah so, so in your book, you tell the story of putting off your own dreams while working in venture capital. And sometimes we kind of need those experiences in order to go after our dreams, right? To prepare us, to motivate us, to bring our dreams into greater clarity. Or in your case, you talk about getting really, really angry at yourself enough so that you literally had no other choice than to go after this new life that you discovered from those questions that you answered. So how do we know when it's time to end those kind of like holdover experiences and chase after our big dreams?
2: Yeah, I think that's such a good question Um, because I think a lot of people and myself included can stay too long, even once we know. Um, And I've done this in the past with different jobs, different relationships where I'm like, I know this is over, but I just don't know if I'm ready to kind of do the next thing. And I think that's fine. You know, that's like everyone's path is is sometimes your path is meant to stay a little too long and to learn the lesson from that. And I would say that for me, I had been so focused on climbing a specific ladder that when I got to the top of it, I didn't even realize that like I'd put it on the wrong wall. You know, I was like, oh, I didn't even want this ladder in the first place, but I was just so busy doing And I think that holding a lot of time and space away from doing is the way that you can arrive at your answer. And so I was going on a lot of meditation retreats at this time. I was spending a lot of time by myself. Even when I was in relationships, I was still like making a lot of time just to be home alone, journaling, and making sure that that doing, going part of me didn't overshadow this little voice that was giving me indications. And I think for me, mine sounded like anger. <laughs> and I think other people's might have a different voice to it, like maybe sadness or frustration or, you know, not having fun anymore, just feelings of blase, you know, apathy when it comes to life. But my, for better or for worse, I think my natural like inclination is like, just to get really fired up about things. And so, you know, I think that the realization was, I was so angry and I was so upset, but it still wasn't obvious that I had to leave because I had such a good setup in my last job. They were really wonderful to me. You get paid a lot of money. It's very prestigious. And I, what happened was I asked myself, I played it forward. And I was like, do I want to be the kind of person who chooses money and prestige over everything else? Or do I want to be the kind of person who chooses passion, service, and joy? And I was like, well, I feel like that's a pretty easy answer. <laughs> even though it was a hard decision to make and it was even Kind of extract myself from this life, but it did take a long time, and I think that for anyone who's listening, it's okay not to feel rushed. And even after I decided that I wanted to leave, I still forced myself to take actually a minimum of six months to decide what I wanted to do. Um, and I actually, looking back, I actually don't have a lot of regrets because I um, think everything was meant to be. But the one thing that I wish I, I had done was actually maybe taken a little bit more of like a sabbatical in between jobs. I don't know, did, did either of you do that? Take in, any sort of spaciousness in between?
0: We've both taken sabbaticals at different stages. So I took a sabbatical actually before starting full plate, full cup. That's same, smart. Same thing. I left, <laughs> I left a nine to five normal job and promised myself that I would take at least six months before I committed to doing anything. And I think it was right around that six-month mark that Amanda and I linked up and were like, let's do this. And I know, Amanda, you took you took a longer yeah. sabbatical.
1: Yeah. So I have sort of a different story. Before we started this business, I already had two kids and uh, a mortgage and you know, lots of responsibilities that, given the circumstances of my life, were not conducive with taking a sabbatical. Um, but actually in my 20s, I experienced extreme burnout and took a year-long sabbatical. I left the very, very fast-paced, high-powered world of hospitality and uh, kind of had to figure my shit out because I was so burnt out. And that was the year I got certified as a meditation teacher, a health coach. I did my Reiki certification. I went to India. I went to Bali. It was like the whole eat, pray, love <laughs> type of situation. And I, you know, I think a lot of people listening might be thinking, oh my God, six months, that's such a long time. But that's only because of the way that we've been sort of uh, acculturated to believe in the passage of time, right? Like six months when you're working at a startup is both like a decade and like a snap of a finger. But six months when you're on a journey of self exploration, it's just like the tip of the iceberg. So I'm curious, uh, what did what did you do during the sabbatical that you did took? What 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 were the tools, the practices? How did you use that time? Because someone listening might be like what would i do for six whole months
2: <laughs> yeah um i so when i was 28 i want to say they're 27 or 28 then i took a year off to travel and did something very similar to you <laughs> I got really into meditation went to india that's when i studied at the ashram actually during that time i was married to my first husband and we had gotten married when i was fairly young and he was fairly young um, especially for New York City. And we wanted to write a book together. And we also wanted to make a movie together. He was a filmmaker. So we had a plan and none of it wound up happening. And then we realized pretty quickly within this trip that our marriage was not going very well. And we broke up not too long after we got back from the trip. And so it was a really interesting learning experience in that i had always been a planner, like, this is my five year plan. This is my checklist, personal and professional. I need to get this done. And it was this release of control and realizing that the plan just doesn't work. <laughs> no, sometimes, you know, no matter how much you really will it to and you want it to. Um, and what happened out of that trip was I very much inadvertently started a consulting practice. So when I was in Japan and we were staying in this tiny, tiny town called Beppu, that is not known for anything except for, it has 2000 hot springs, it's really nice. You can go to these bath houses for $2 and you know take really beautiful baths in the onsen. So we'd do that every day. What happened during that time was my old boss from my previous nine to five job called and said, hey, since you happen to be in Japan, would you like to help us recruit for our, our Tokyo office that we're launching? So sure, I'd love to do that. Help them figure out how to hire people, et cetera. Then I did that for them in Hong Kong and Brazil. With their offices there. And when I got back to the States, I had sort of hung my shingle on someone who could jump in for recruiting and HR people related operations projects um, when you didn't have a team to do it. And after doing that for a couple of years, one of my clients said, Hey, you should talk to my investors. They're a venture capital firm. They're looking for someone like you to lead their talent practice. Would you like to meet them? And so it was funny because I had these grand dreams for it where I thought my life would go with my sabbatical. Beautiful things happened, but they weren't anything that I had ever put on my list. And so it sounds kind of silly because a lot of people do want to work in venture capital. And I'm like, well, I just kind of ended up there. And I don't mean to sound flippant that way. I just share that because it's like it's funny because my dream was actually really different. (laughs) And I'm so grateful for the way it unfolded, but I couldn't have chosen this life for myself because I didn't even know it existed.
1: Yeah, What I love, I love that. about that story is that it just, it illustrates the fact that uh, the universe and chance and mystery all plays a role in, in a, what what might seem from the outside a sort of linear path to success, right? Um, that That it shows that, you know, there are things that come out of these sort of happy accidents, right? You being in Japan just at the moment where that job was needed and then, you know, all the things that resulted from it. So I want to fast forward to you deciding to open uh, Reset's physical space in New York City, which I want you to tell everyone a little bit about. But before you open that piece of uh, that, that business, you got two pieces of advice, which was that you should have a highly conservative business plan and that there's no difference between what you believe and what becomes reality. So a little bit of like practical, real world, you know, business advice, and then this sort of more dreamy manifestation like advice. So how does someone who is you know, wanting to build a business or even build a career, how do they balance the interplay of those two seemingly contradictory things?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's funny because I always tell the founders who I coach that their job is really hard because they have to hold those two opposing mindsets. You have to be the biggest advocate, believer, optimistic person, for yourself, you're like, I can get anything done. And on the other hand, you have to be vigilant about everything that could go wrong. And it is really hard to hold those you know, those opposing um, mindsets. And so I think that the way that I try to reframe it for them and for myself is, you know, you're gonna jump off a cliff and you're gonna believe that you're gonna get to where you're going, but you're gonna pack the best parachute. You're gonna double, triple check it. You're gonna make sure you have all your supplies to give yourself the best chance of success. Um, And I think it's hard because, you know, you can get bogged down into this idea of like, well, I don't wanna look at all the um, anxious parts of this or the anxiety inducing parts of this work, but to reframe it as like, I'm setting myself up for success, I'm investing myself, I'm putting this time so that, you know, better handle it now than later. I wish I had listened to that advice because it came from a great person again, I think because I didn't take off any time in between, I didn't really, and I was doing two jobs. I was working in venture capital as an executive with a team to manage, like a pretty large team, a lot of responsibilities for nine months while it was also trying to get this business off the ground. Um, And so I actually didn't have the spaciousness or the distance to be able to really do that work. I was just like, I need to, it was almost like I was trying to get out of my current job by doing something else. It was like, you know, the rebound, you know, the bad pancake or whatever they say, it's like the first pancake always gets ruined. And that's kind of what I was doing. And I wish I had some more time to, to be thoughtful. Um, and it was funny cause I went to a retreat at Omega Institute maybe about a month ago and Elizabeth Gilbert was hosting and they were talking about money and finances. And she actually said something really similar where she had this mindset of like, I'm so blessed, I'm so abundant she was just giving away all this money because it was also partly coupled with the side of not feeling worth all this money that had come her way. And after three years, she decided to finally hire an accountant. And the accountant said, do you know how much money you've given away over the past three years? How much? What percentage of your earnings? She said, probably 25 to 20 to 25%. And the accountant said 79%. And the accountant was like, you can do whatever you want. You can give away seventy nine percent of your income, but you have to be aware of what you're doing, and it's about that awareness and that understanding. And she was like, "Well, I don't want to do that. How many money?" <laughs> He's like, "Okay, great. Now you know. You know exactly how much it's going to cost you." And I really resonated with that because you know it's like the sizzle and the steak. You know, you have to really believe in the magic, but then you also have to like cross your t's and dot your eyes because like behind every magician. that magician on stage, what you see is like just one sliver of everything underneath the iceberg that that person's preparing.
1: Yeah. I love that you share that. When, when I, when I work with founders, particularly early stage, I'm always asking them to think about like, what's the, what's the gross, but what's the net, right? Like you need to think about not just how does it look from the outside? How, how, how high is my production value, right? Like, how big of a team do I have, but like, what's left over for me? What, what is, what is this business actually? And so we love in your book that you share about the financial burdens that you faced in, in, uh, in launching your business. Like people don't share those stories, uh, vulnerably enough. So we'd love to know sort of as, uh, as an entrepreneur who has had many iterations of the entrepreneurial journey, but particularly with the, with the physical space that, that also had to close during COVID. I'd love to hear what you learned sort of from the the financial uh, hardships of opening the space and then eventually having to close the space.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, So I opened a space in Nolita, which for anyone who's a New York aficionado knows is a really expensive neighborhood. I mean, part of this too, (laughs) is that I was going from venture capital where like, I was working at a top venture capital fund where they're like, yeah, like, of course, like you would invest, you know, a certain amount of money into a business. Um, And so I had worked there for almost four years. So I had this super skewed mindset. I wasn't scrappy. (laughs) That's actually the problem. Like I wasn't scrappy at all. forgot that it was like my own money. You know, I was like, oh yeah, sure. I'll invest this in myself. Um, So I got this really expensive space, spent a lot of money on like an expensive renovation, took out a $100,000 personal loan from SoFi. I was like, you know, I'm going to save, keep the bulk of my savings for me, But then every month, the space was losing money. You know, we had people coming in. Basically, the premise was what we would hold corporate retreats during the day and then have classes um, for people at night who wanted to take courses on, you know, self-discovering learning. So it might be like astrology for your career. It might be a sound bath, meditation class, something like that. But, you know, that business model, unless you're at capacity, is very hard because you're paying the teacher. You're paying someone to be there, you're paying for the upkeep of the studio. and sometimes one or two people might show up. Um, and I also wasn't consistently booking corporate clients enough to cover all the expenses of the space. So for the first six months, I lost money every month. It was like pulling into my savings. and then also there were so many unexpected costs that I couldn't predict like it's so funny, like air conditioner units. you're like, oh, wow, okay, so that's like two thousand bucks. you know, and then you're like, oh okay, now I need to order some new cushions for these chairs because people find them uncomfortable. They're like, okay, great. That's like another 3000 bucks. Like, oh, I need more glasses. You know? Oh, the boiler is broken. All these things that I didn't realize also as like at that point, a lifelong renter in New York city, <laughs> like don't know. Cause I've never owned a place. And so at this point, things were getting really out of control. And not only had I gone into my savings, I had also, like sold all of my stocks on Robinhood and then also sold a huge chunk of my 401k and then I'd also taken out $40,000 on high interest credit cards that were going to start accumulating interest that December. And so I was like, okay, now I'm like, you know, $140,000 plus in the hole and then I got this tax bill for $30,000 because Donald Trump had like changed some of the regulations and so and it didn't get pulled from my salary when I worked at the venture capital fund, and mm-hmm. so then I had to pay this additional thirty k bill, and I was like, oh my god, I don't know, this is crazy. It was like almost it was like one hundred seventy thousand dollars, and I didn't have any income. I was just like totally freaking out. I don't have you know family support in that way. I had a partner, but we were very very new, and so and we've also never been financially commingled in that way. I was like i don't know i just have to keep going but then things started getting better we started turning a tiny profit but at least i wasn't going in the hole because i was out of money to bail myself out of the hole three months into making money then it was march 2020 and covid shut everything down i had to move everything from my space into storage i had to give up the space and i lost my deposit which was like eighteen thousand dollars I also lost my income stream and and I had been doing some executive coaching, but I had I think only two clients at the time. And so it was very, very minimal to the blend of like what what the, the space was doing. It was totally devastating. I remember I couldn't even pack up all the stuff in the space, but I had to get out of it because I had the movers were coming. I just sat on the floor and I cried and my husband and his best friend literally like, were like wrapping tiny crystals and glasses and bowls and putting them to boxes for me oh my god it's been like three years i'm like getting emotional thinking about it (laughs) it was so sad because you know it's like exactly what you said amanda about like gross versus Mm nut i had been in the new yorker the new york times marie claire there was so much good press for the space but no one knew that on the inside i was like completely drowning (laughs) like and across every dimension, emotionally, financially, mentally, physically.
1: Oh, I, I worked in the hospitality industry for over a decade. So, like everything that you're saying, like, oh, boiler, <laughs> the cushions, the glasses, right? Who knew you broke so many glasses in a single night and that you're constantly having your breath? So uh I really um I really thank you for sharing that because somebody listening is going to realize that they can bounce back from a situation that they might be in that is similar right they they will realize that they can move forward they might say you know what i'm not going to go quite as extreme in terms of uh how how much i'm going to put forth of my own resources and risk and if people don't share those types of stories, we don't help other people in making better choices, um, or in recovering from, uh, heartbreak because that's heartbreak. I'm like, I was getting emotional for you, um, that the, the concept of the business is so beautiful. Um, and so I just, I just want to send you some love and compassion and thank you for sharing that.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I am very honest. I try to be really honest about my mistakes and shortcomings because, you know, that was, the hardest year i've ever had because i had previously as we discussed here done everything for positive validation from other people that was where all my self confidence and self worth came from was 100% external and then when all of that got removed during the pandemic and when my space shut down i did not know how to generate that own goodwill towards myself i had never used that muscle before And so that was the year where i learned how to truly love myself and so i look back on this year where i'm like yeah that was definitely my rock bottom year but what was really cool is i ended that year and since then i have been my own biggest cheerleader my own biggest fan even even when my bank account was like literally just enough to pay rent every month and i was like i'm 35 years old i've worked very long hours my whole career and now i'm back to zero again um but you know what? That's cool. I'm a great person. <laughs> you know, like I love myself. And so that was such a big treasure in, in, in all of it, where I realized that, um, I didn't have to be perfect and I didn't have to be special to be worthy of love. Every human being, every animal is worthy of that exactly for who they are. And I think that was the big breakthrough that I needed for myself to feel really comfortable, um, getting married to my now husband, because I was like, I every relationship I'd been in before, I didn't really truly know how to love myself. I was depending on so much from the other person. And this time I was like, you know what, I can get into this. (laughs) We can do this and have a better outcome.
0: Yeah. Well, in, in your book, you actually say that the biggest myth about confidence is that we have to earn it. And as you said, you kind of spent your life looking for that external validation that you had to go out and earn right and so we we love this myth we also think that it is absolutely false but if if we don't earn confidence from like a shiny new job or a big accomplishment or a thriving profitable business right how can we gain it outside of learning to understand that we are worthy of love are there any like specific steps that you suggest people start with
2: absolutely I think you two will probably resonate with me on this but I love personality assessments and it's just such a cool tool to bring language to what is unique and special about you you know something as simple as taking a free Myers-Briggs type inventory quiz online and knowing oh yeah this is my type these are my strengths and hearing someone else say it because it's not about something you did it's just about your innate characteristics Um, And so I love MBTI. I love the Enneagram. I love astrology. I love numerology because they were all ways of me seeing my internal characteristics that were really good because no one had ever, you know, rewarded me for like, you know, my mom wasn't like, you're a nice person. My mom was like, great. You got straight A's amazing. And so I needed to, like, I didn't know actually what was good about myself. So I needed to give language to that. And then I was like, oh, okay. Here are some things I like about myself. I'm very disciplined. I'm, I work hard. I'm kind to people. You know, I make time for myself. I have a yoga practice that, you know, is really strengthening for me. And so I think starting to slowly notice just even as you go through your day, the little things you do, like I made breakfast really well. And I started keeping a list of, you know, three things I did well every day. And honestly, at this point in my life, it was pretty, bleak. And so some days it was like, I did the dishes, you know, or like I made my bed and you know, things were so slow that like my sister-in-law looked at my email because we were all staying together in the same house during the pandemic. And she was like, you're not really getting any emails. And I was like, I have no emails. I have like nothing going on here. Like literally I just like went for a run and then like tried to figure out my life, you know, and, you know, tried to drum up some business. Um, so I think it's like, and it was okay. I was like, wow, I did that. Like I got up this morning and I reached out to five people, even though it was really hard. And so I think that celebrating achievements is yay. That's great. But I think celebrating persistence, determination, you know, getting up out of bed, like even if you sleep until 10 and you like pull yourself out of bed when you're really depressed, like that is a victory. And that is like, honestly, a lot harder to do than like when everything's on an upward spiral.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, giving ourselves credit for those little things that we do for ourselves, right? Even if it is, I got out of bed, I did the dishes because that adds up. And those things are what build the momentum and the confidence necessary to do the bigger things to go after your dreams, right? But if you don't have that foundation set in your life, in your day, in yourself, it's going to be really hard to go after those bigger milestones. So, you know, I would love to dive into your book, which when this episode airs, will be out into the world. You titled the book, The Karma of Success. So you define karma as, this is a quote from the book, the personal destiny you earn based on your actions in this life and past ones. And we can generate good karma when we live in alignment with our values, authenticity, and intuition. So we want to know, how do you define success?
2: Well, I think everyone, this is an exercise that everyone should do because I have a little thing that I say to myself every morning or every afternoon when I'm starting to work on something that, you know, I need to reconnect to what my purpose is. And my personal definition is I say, may I be, or may my learnings and hardships be of service to others. May I help everyone I touch access their greatest potential through my love. And then may I be learning and growing personally every day. So I think that's what matters to me, but that's just because of my motivators. I'm really motivated by competence, like learning. I'm really motivated by altruism. Like I like being in service of other people and I know not everyone is that way, but like, and then the third thing is like, I need to feel a personal impact. Like if I'm coaching someone and, you know, they're paying my full rate, but like, I'm not making a difference. I'm so disheartened. And I'm sure the two of you can resonate with that. I get so down on myself. I'm like, why can't I help this? Why can't, this is my fault. Like, why can't I get this person to see what they're doing? You know, obviously sometimes it takes time, but, um, you know, I think back to my poor therapist when I was like 28, where I literally would show up every day for like a year and like literally tell her the same problems. And she was probably like, "WTF." Yeah. <laughs> To learn your lesson you know and so i i'm really motivated by impact and so that's where my success comes from and so i think for every person understanding what lights you up and what your motivators are is essential there's like a frame that i like to think of where there's like eight kind of key motivators in life and like you know usually we have two or three of those it's an exercise i do so i like because even just and you can just google it i think if you just like google the top motivators you can see what the options are or you can choose from that and try to put language around it and I think that's what it looks like with that in the combination of are you receiving the right amount for the energy that you're putting out and by that I mean you know both energetically and monetarily because money is just energy at the end of the day it's energy exchange but we need to be especially as women getting a full exchange for what we're doing and so I also see that as a success too Not to be like, I need to make the most money in the world, but I am a very resource oriented person because I think it's important, especially as women in service roles to show up and say like, this is what I'm worth. And like, this is the energy and the heart and the experience I'm putting into it. And like, I need to get paid enough so that I feel good about it. And that like, I know that my energy is getting fairly compensated.
0: I really like what you just said. The Experience that I'm putting into it, right? It's something that Amanda and I talk about often, that we talk about with our clients often that you are not just getting paid for the service that you are providing right then and there, or the product that you're providing. You are also getting paid for the years, maybe decades of experiences and knowledge and mistakes and learnings to steal your words that you put in to get to this point, to be able to offer that product or service to people. And so I think that's a really important point that people don't talk about and acknowledge enough. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah. Uh, The number one thing people ask us is, how do I heal from burnout and how do I prevent my burnout from coming back? We've been teaching burnout busting tools to our one-on-one executive clients for years. And now we are bringing these strategies directly to you with our first ever digital course from burnt out to lit up. Over four weeks, we'll guide you step-by-step to get your group back and reclaim your life. And if you're thinking, I have no time for this, we've got you.
0: This no fluff course is intentionally designed to take less than 20 minutes each day and will not only leave you feeling more engaged and enthusiastic, but we'll also set you up to keep burnout at bay for the long haul. Use code PODCAST to get $30 off your course fee. To learn more about this course and to sign up, visit FullPlatefulCup.com slash course. Again, go to FullPlatefulCup.com slash course and use code PODCAST for $30 off. You deserve to beat burnout for good and feel like you again. So can you explain the interplay between karma and success to our audience?
2: Yeah. So karma is, um, is not a transactional experience. Like if you help an old lady cross the street, you're not going to find a hundred dollars on the sidewalk, like right (laughs) afterwards. Um, It is culmination of the way that you are in the world. And Even across lifetimes, right? So sometimes we have generated, not sometimes, but if you believe in past lives, which I do, then we have all generated this karma, even from experiences we don't consciously recall from our previous lives and existences. I think that the career is the same way. It's exactly what we were talking about earlier, where it is not linear and it is not transactional. Like if I do X, then I will get Y. The universe also has a hand and is dropping in amazing surprises. And gifts for us that we just need to be there to receive. Um, And so the interplay between karma and success is in a way, yeah, you can control your success by showing up and being someone who is in your full integrity, whatever that means to you, you know, that's your choice. And we also can't control it because sometimes things are just happening to us, right? And it's about trust and about receiving. That's how I think about it because I think so many people such as my previous self were very much like, if I do X, then I'll get Y. Okay. If I want Y, then I need to do A, B, and C. The karma of success, that concept is meant to eradicate such a simplification of the way that our careers work. They are not linear. They are multi-dimensional. There are so many parts that are happening that we can see in effect that we also can't see in effect. Even just releasing that and saying, I can't control what I can't control, but I can control what I can control, which is me, which is how I show up, which is how I treat people. And so there are little things that like, you know, are silly, but I think, right, you know, treating everyone you meet really well, you know, not to the extent where you're infringing on too much of your own time, where like, you know, you're not making time for yourself, but I think showing up with integrity, being honest, being truthful, negotiating well, being true to yourself, you know, there's lots of things that we can do to put our own selves and our own sense of values ahead of you know the rat race like making money being competitive all that stuff and it's funny because i'm like actually a very deeply business oriented person and i think part of this thesis of the karma of success i created it because i had to remind myself i always constantly have to remind myself liz like you're not here on this planet just to like try to put cash in the bank, you know, I grew up very, very poor. So like, I think that was like my orientation. It's like, you are here because you have a soul and your soul is on a journey and that's the karma of success. I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I can remember that.
1: I love that so much. Um, Rebecca and I often, uh, we often joke because I am someone who could spend more time in the spiritual plane. I like sit with my lap crystal when I do. (laughs) <laughs> when I do calls the lap crystals always here. You had it um, here again today. I love it. Lap I love it always here. And, you know, I, I love that you share this because I, I think you and I coach a similar archetype of individual who is very business oriented, is very motivated by external markers of success. and they are also souls on a soul's journey. And when you have that realization, it can be very startling and there can be uh, this sort of thought that those two worlds can't coexist. And so what you've done so beautifully with this, this thesis, the karma of success, is that actually they can coexist. You don't have to throw out your soul's path to, you know, become a unicorn founder, right? But, you know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. There's actually a beautiful uh, way that they can become intersectional. And I think that may give people who are sort of at that, I don't want to say awakening moment, but at that moment where they realize like, hey, this thing I'm doing, this career isn't everything. It's like, yeah, it's not everything, but it does matter. And it's, it doesn't have to be in conflict with a spiritual path, a spiritual life, uh, you know, your your overall karma and your soul's destiny. So I love that so much. In your book, you uh, define a lot of concepts uh, and we would love to double click into a few of them, a few of these um, kind of phrases that you've coined that we loved so much. So I'm just gonna like say it and then you tell everybody what it means in the context of uh, your book and how they can apply it to their life and their career. The first is inner genius
2: yay we all have an inner genius it is the part of you that operates outside of even conscious talent right um it is closely tied to your intuition so your inner genius can actually make decisions problem solve and come up with creative solutions faster than your conscious mind can we all know that when we're in the shower and suddenly an idea pops into our head and we're like oh my god i know exactly what to do for the next podcast episode Or, oh, wow, I know exactly what to say to this person in this meeting. And that's coming from your inner genius. Um, And what we all need to do is to spend less time trying to be perfect, but more time creating space um, in the right environment for the inner genius and let it be easy and let it flow. Um, The inner genius is all about making work not only more successful, but also more easeful, more relaxing. You know, it's like it's when you're in that flow state and you're like, some hand is guiding me. And I'm just going to go with it. That's your inner genius.
1: I love that. Something that Rebecca says a lot is that like we often, uh, shortchange or undermine the things that come naturally to us, like our gifts, like we're like, well, that, that just, that's so easy. So that's not valuable or that's not like as, as, uh, exciting as something that I had to work really hard for. And so reminding yourself that actually no, like your inner genius, the, 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 um, your, you know, even with the personality test thing, sort of like the way that you are naturally wired is actually a huge part of the value uh, that you bring to your life and to your work. The three S's is the next term we'd love for you to go into.
2: Yes, so the three S's are the environment where the inner genius can really be heard, and that is stillness, silence, and solitude. Um, we do not get enough of those things. Our world is so loud. The other day, I looked at my phone, and you know, it can give you those stats for how many times you pick it up, and like what apps you open when you pick it up, and how many minutes. And I was terrified. I was like, "I'm a monster. I cannot look at these numbers anymore." And my husband looks at his numbers regularly, and I'm like, "I can't do that. It's too disconcerting." You know, there's always some notification or something that is tra- vying for our attention. Um, and of course you can't hear the inner genius because it's like, Oh, well, I'm answering this email. And then I'm like responding to this text message. And then I'm calling this person back and then I'm on the zoom. Um, and so those three S's are essential. Even if you just get 15 minutes of them a day over coffee or while walking your dog It's game changing.
1: Love that divine play.
2: Mm, so this is a Sanskrit term. Um, and divine play is at the essence of all that is in the world. And I, I love this because it's a reminder that, you know, like this whole ethos of I'm super busy, I'm really important, and I'm working really hard. That is a construct that capitalism has imbued upon us. And we can have fun, and there can be lightness, and that is the natural state of being. And it's okay. Like, I think sometimes people think that if they haven't suffered enough, then they're not working hard enough. Um, but I, you know, really want to replace that with, um, if you're having fun, then actually cognitively your brain can function better. It is not fully burnt out. You two have a course on burnout. Everyone should just take it because you need to shift yourself out of that zone where if you are burnt out, your brain actually cannot function. You are in pure fight or flight mode. Um, and so injecting divine plane back into your life is actually the smartest thing you can do for success because you can actually cognitively function with your prefrontal cortex much better.
0: Yes. And we actually talk about play in our course, right? Because reconnecting to your sense of joy and fun and not taking everything so damn seriously, right? Like there's there's so much in the world that is serious by nature. And there's also so much that we make serious unnecessarily. Right. So it's where can you introduce more joy and, as you say, divine play, which we love that phrase so much back into your life. So thank you for walking us through those three terms. It's so helpful. You know, at at one point in your book, you say that, quote, making decisions from practicality is about control, which, oh my God, did I just raise my hand and resonate (laughs) with that one? So, you know, in theory, like, We would love to release control over our lives and throw our hands up, but there's certain things that just need to get done, right? Like we have bills to pay. Amanda needs to take her kids to camp every day and pick them up. We need to put food on the table. We have clients that, that need us. How do you delineate between when to let go and follow your intuitive self versus knowing which decisions, if any, need to be made from a practical controlling place?
2: yes this is a great question and i think it actually back to that earlier question of like building a business of where do you need to be super practical i think when there are there's numbers and information it's just valuable to know what they are (laughs) you know and like and and you're not necessarily making a decision from that place but at least you have all of the information and so when i'm working with clients i really push them and i say you know do you know all the information like have you asked for comps from other people? Have you asked your investors to understand what's going on? But do not make your decision. Do not just copy paste what someone else has done in the past. From there, you shift into your intuition, you tune in, then you make your decision purely based on that. Um, It's like how uh, really good chess players, they don't think before they make their next moves. It's like very, very intuitive for them, but they have accumulated that right to work through intuition because they've played thousands of hours of chess. Um, and I do this a lot while I'm coaching where, and I think you two can resonate. Sometimes I'll just feel compelled to bring something up or push on a topic. And I don't really know the reason why, but you know, it's because I do have lots of previous experience and I got better at it as I was coaching more and more. Um, and so I think that that's like sort of the balance is like, You want to know everything that you can but you need to know that like that data that you're accumulating um, is not going to solve your problems i am a reddit junkie i find that like i can over try to find information on reddit like i just went through ivf and i was like looking at all these like data and charts and blah 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 and i had to remind myself i'm just trying to control the situation um the data actually isn't helping me create more of um more intelligence for myself or a better frame I need to put it away and just focus on my lived experience right here and right now. So, knowing when you're starting to get diminishing returns from this, you know, attempt to control, and then just saying, like, this is actually hurting me rather than helping me.
1: Yeah, I love that so much. I was just having a conversation with a client yesterday about uh, you want to have all the data, right? You want to have all of the uh, the data available to you. Want to know, like, what are the possible outcomes? But that doesn't mean you have to choose based on the data, right? You can say it's statistically more likely that I should do this, and that will be more successful. But I actually am still going to go this way, despite having that information. And that's that's where it becomes fun and exciting. And I think, you know, if you pulled all of the "quote unquote" most successful people out there across any field, right? they probably would not tell you that they just followed the data straight down the line, right? Or there would be more people that were just capable of sort of breaking through and, and you know, becoming the, you know, the Grammy winner or the, you know, the Oscar winner or whatever the things are. But, like, we have to, like, have enough information to not always have to listen to all of the information. So, um,
2: yeah, I think we can, when we know too much sometimes, it can actually create artificial ceilings where we're like, oh, well, I haven't seen it before in the data. So it must must not be possible for me to do. And then therefore we are actually limiting ourselves. And that's and you're right. It's like very dangerous that way, because if you're just purely going off the data, you can never be the first or the best, right? You're just always going to be at the mean.
1: Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Someone needs that advice. <laughs> so something I talk about often is being able to actually enjoy your success. Uh, it, nothing breaks my heart more than I when I see people who have a mission, have a purpose, have a vision for something, and then work so hard towards the success of it. That they that they lose sight of all the joy, and they're they're burned out. they're they're not able to actually enjoy themselves. So in the book, you say that the harder you know there's a myth that the harder you push yourself, the more successful you'll be. And we obviously know that that is not the truth. So, from your experience, both as a uh, you know, in this working world and as a coach of very successful people, how do you recommend that people, you know keep their cups full as we say and and respond to the demands of a big career while still being able to tap into that divine play part of themselves
2: yeah it's really essential i mean with my clients i try to keep them in their zone of genius as much of the time as possible and they really fight me about it where they're like well why should i do this and it's so wild that you know the this person imagine your typical founder who has sacrificed and risked so much to follow this dream this vision and they don't even have time to pee (laughs) in between meetings or eat lunch like so many seed stage founders who are like oh my god i forgot to eat today i'm like it's 5 p.m what are you talking about you know that is like not fun no one likes that (laughs) you know and so why would you take this risk and then like do this thing that you your soul wants to do just to be able to barely cover your human functioning. It just doesn't really make sense. And so honestly, for when I work with them, I try to actually give them evidence, evidence based reasons to show that they're operating better when they're happier. And so I start to play back those moments for them where I'm like, Hey, why did this mistake happen? What's your state of mind? What's going on with you? Where did this win happen? How did this win happen? And I start to sort of give them examples from their own life of how that playful spirit, that joy, that levity actually led to better experiences. I'm like, oh, you closed this great deal. Was it fun? How did it feel for you? And so then we actually start to rewrite the thesis that exists in their mind. And I do that this work for myself constantly. I am naturally a more anxious, worry-driven person, or I have been in my past life. And so I literally every day of this book launch, I've been writing three things that have gone well or have been really fun. And Mm -hmm. I think as a, and then also, you know, like it's obviously like there are ups and downs as we were talking about earlier, but I don't want to be someone who's like, oh, it's so hard because then you start to think it's hard. And so (laughs) I literally walk around my house, like a crazy person talking to my dog. And I'm like, I love this book launch. This book launch is so fun. This is the best. It is like so cool. And it helps, like it sounds insane, but it really helps. And then it's like, okay. And if I know I'm starting to feel down the dumps, I need to elevate my um, joy level by going and do something fun. And like, that might mean like making myself a smoothie or making myself pancakes or going for a walk with my dog. Um, but I consider those things work, you know, where I'm like, I am working because if I start my day at a 10 of joy, then I'll probably wind up at like a six or a seven at the end of the day. But if I started at a five, I'm like definitely a zero by lunchtime. For whatever yeah. reason, like the lower you start, the faster you drop. Um, yeah. And so I think it's not just like great because it feels good. But for performance-based reasons, you know, honestly, I think one of the reasons why reset the physical space suffered so much is because I was miserable. Like I, as a person was getting up and being so unhappy every day. So of course my business wasn't doing well but I didn't know that then.
0: (laughs) And I, I, what you just said about doing the things that bring you joy, that fill your cup, like making pancakes, walking your dog, right? That being work, it's almost like scheduling meetings with yourself, right? Like if you if you are a busy working professional or an entrepreneur and you're like, I don't have time, think of it as a meeting with yourself, right? That will enable that. you to do your job to the best of your ability and achieve more than what you thought was possible. So Liz, thank you for that. So we have two rapid fire questions that we ask all of our guests. Are you ready? Ready. All right. So Liz, what is one tip for working smart?
2: Okay. So- I think that something that takes up too much space are things that have been left unsaid and are just festering in the deep recesses and cobwebbed corners of our mind. So my tip is that if you are still thinking about something that happened 48 hours later, you need to say something within 24 hours.
0: I love that. And I love the timeline. And second question is, what is one tip for working happy?
2: Well. I don't know. I thought your tip was really great. <laughs> like, I love oh, that. Oh, gosh. I am gonna start scheduling meetings with myself. I mean, that's very cool because then you hold it to the, you know, you hold yourself accountable in the same way. Like, I'm not going to be late to a meeting with you two. Why would I cancel this meeting on myself? That's so disrespectful. So I like framing it as a meeting with myself. But then I guess another tip for having fun. So whenever I have something to do that I really hate doing, like invoices or accounting, I really go ham on making it really fun for myself where like I literally put on like the tv and watch old episodes of like gossip girl or whatever and I'll like order pizza and I'll sit on my couch and put on my like coziest pajamas and I'm like if I'm gonna do this task that is a slightly aggravating for me. I'm just gonna treat myself like a princess. So that's what I do. And my husband comes in I and he's like, really party. it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. I just change it to my pajamas for like thir- like 90 minutes to get this done and I put my regular clothes back on and like the rest of the day.
0: We too <laughs> love pizza and gossip girls. So you're
1: in good company. <laughs> I'm literally <laughs> feeling that. Well we had such a great time talking to you. I feel like we could talk to you forever. You're like our soul sister. Um where can our listeners find you?
2: at reset NYC on Instagram. And my website is Liz, my first name hyphen tran.com. And so you can find information about the book and the podcast. The podcast is on Spotify and Apple and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. And then my book is the karma of success. It should be everywhere that books are sold. Um, So I hope people read it and like it. (laughs) And if not, that's okay. Because I had fun.
0: We highly <laughs> recommend it. Go out go out and buy Liz's book. And after you buy it, make sure that you leave a glowing review online, wherever you bought it from, because that is a huge help to authors.
2: Yes, it is a huge help. And then something fun that we're doing is that if you leave a review and then you email it to info at resetnyc, then um, info at resetnyc.com, then um, we will pull like a... Um, uh, Oracle card for you and send you a picture of the Oracle card. So it's kind of like a fun way to kind of set your day. So, um, leave a review and then like either myself or Nikki, who's on my team, we will tap into your energy of the review that you left and then pull an Oracle card for you.
1: I love that so much. And I'm going to do it immediately. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> My like sister. Thank you so much, Liz, for being here with us today. And we can't wait to share this episode with the world.
2: Yes, thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Full Plate, Full Cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to
1: subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate, Full Cup methodology or to work with us in a more personal way, Find us on Instagram at FullPlateFullCup, that's at F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E, F-U-L-L-C-U-P, or online at www.FullPlateFullCup.com, www.F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E, F-U-L-L-C-U-P.com.